You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 25th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. The UK's new PM unveils a remarkably familiar-looking cabinet. Is Russia once again doing that thing of preemptively blaming everyone else for what it plans to do? And are we taking aliens sufficiently seriously? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nadine Batchelor-Hunt, Somnath Batabayal and Stephen DL will be here to discuss all the day's big stories and we'll have the latest of Chris Chermak's reports anticipating next month's midterm elections in the United States. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Stephen Deal, writer, broadcaster and Russia analyst, and by Nadine Batchelor-Hunt, political correspondent for Yahoo News UK. Somnath will be joining us shortly uh, for the moment. Hello to you both. Good evening. Uh, It being another slow news day, uh, let's crack immediately on with it. We will start here in the UK, where the formalities attendant upon the appointment of a new Prime Minister have been concluded, and Rishi Sunak has enacted the traditional resolute wave on the doorstep of 10 Downing Street. He faces many challenges, an economic crisis, a war in Europe, a death of talent from which to pick a cabinet, the tired and rancorous Conservative Party sitting behind him in the Commons, although that of a tough act to follow is not among them. Sunak's predecessor, Liz Truss, who served 49 days, has begun her retirement as a pub quiz answer. Uh, First of all, here is a little of what the new Prime Minister had to say earlier today. I will unite our country, not with words, but with action. I will work day in and day out to deliver for you. This government will have integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Trust is earned and I will earn yours. Rishi Sunak speaking earlier. Nadine, integrity, professionalism and accountability, and the headline of his cabinet reshuffle is the reappointment of a Home Secretary sacked a week ago over a security breach. It's actually less than a week ago, it's six days ago. Six days is a long time in politics, Nadine. Yeah, it really is. I mean, Liz Truss was appointed Prime Minister and the Queen died two, years, two days later, so it is in British politics. Um, Yeah, I mean... It kind of makes sense for Rishi on one hand to keep Swallow in his cabinet. She's kind of poster child of the Tory right. He needs to have a unified party to try and govern. We saw with Lidge Trust, an ununified party is just chaos. Same with Boris Johnson. So I think that appointment of Swella, uh, particularly given she endorsed him a few days ago, I think mm. there was probably some sort of agreement there that she wouldn't <clears throat> run and she would back him or whatever. But yeah, it, it doesn't seem like a great start to appoint Swella, particularly after the tofu wokarati rant we had. Well, indeed. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, that this is this is politics and he does have to keep these swivel-eyed headbangers on side and she is the most swivel-eyed and headbanging of them. But nevertheless, you can't really lead with integrity, professionalism and accountability and do that because every time he bangs on, 
hear on about integrity, professionalism and accountability, and I suspect he's going to do rather a lot of it, he's just going to get this flung back at him, isn't he? Yeah, for sure. And also, other other appointments in his cabinet, Dominic Raab, I mean, where was he when Afghanistan fell last year? You know, there are... On holiday, I believe. Yeah, so there are, um, there will be questions around the appointments he's made. Obviously, the full cabinet um, isn't, hasn't been fully announced yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, also, his party is the party of Boris Johnson, who's going before the uh, Privileges Committee next month, you know, if Boris Johnson is found to have unlawfully uh, and un, um, knowingly misled Parliament, will he remove the whip? That could be the drama next week. That Boris Johnson's no longer a Tory M- uh, next month. That Boris Johnson's no longer a Tory MP. So it will be chaos. Rishi may want to have a government of accountability and credibility, but he's also got to work with the party that he's got, and unfortunately, a lot of that has been lost. Um, over the, the last year or so. Uh, well, let's hear a little bit more uh, of the Prime Minister speaking earlier. And the heart of that mandate is our manifesto. I will deliver on its promise a stronger NHS, better schools, safer streets, control of our borders, protecting our environment, supporting our armed forces levelling up and building an economy that embraces the opportunities of Brexit, where businesses invest, innovate and create jobs. More of Rishi Sunak speaking earlier. Uh, Stephen, this is among the many weirdnesses of today. First of all, you know, you come to power as a new prime minister. You, you want to, you would assume, make your mark, make it clear that I'm in charge. So, First of all, he appoints an extremely familiar-looking cabinet, uh, and then he starts waving around the 2019 manifesto. Now, in fairness, that was the manifesto on which the party was elected, and by a thumping landslide. But, wow, if we're talking about six days or a week, seeming like a long time in politics, three years right now seems an absolute eternity. This is a manifesto written pre-COVID-19, pre-the war in Ukraine. Um, What is he doing? trying to win as many friends as possible. And I I think looking at the cabinet, uh, it's an old cliche, I know, but he's trying to uh, keep his friends close and his enemies closer still. Um, He's clearly choosing very carefully many of the same people again. Um, He talked in the first clip we heard about uniting the country, which is that's been quite unusual in talk in recent days. Um, the number of Conservative MPs I've heard interviewed whose principal concern, it seems, was to unite the party, um, which had me rather worried. Um, but I think even if he talked about uniting the country, he still has to try and do that. And I think that's an impossible task. I mean, they, they are such a rabble now <laughs> um, that, that, you know, I mean, look, this is a farce. Um, I, I just sort of checked back and I was seven years old before there'd been three prime ministers in this country. My grandson is not quite ten months old, and he's already (laughs) witnessed three prime ministers. Um, The only, seems to me, the only sensible option that uh, should happen now is there should be a general election. Well, I can't imagine the Tories are going to be queuing up for that. They're all able to read the same polls the rest of us are. We have one more clip from Rishi Sunak's speech earlier. I want to pay tribute to my predecessor, Liz Truss. She was not wrong to want to improve growth in this country. It is a noble aim. And I admired her restlessness to create change. But some mistakes were made. 
Uh, Nardine, you don't require an advanced appreciation of political semantics to be able to translate that as my predecessor was bloody useless and I told you so. Um, That said, we have not heard a lot during this latest mercifully brief leadership contest about actual policy. Um, Do we need to go back to what Sunak was talking about in the previous leadership contest, and you don't need that long a memory to recall it, to figure out what he actually plans to do? Yeah, so... That that's the thing. I mean, a lot has happened at the Conservative Party's own hand since that leadership contest when, you know, he was talking about not really making many spending cuts. He wasn't committing not to make any. Mm. So, you know, Rishi was very much a uh, fiscally conservative insofar as he didn't want to make any big commitments on spending. He hadn't really outlined what his energy package would be, despite the fact the warnings were it's going to get really bad. He refused. I think he spoke about suspending VAT on energy bills, but there wasn't really any deep uh, detail and I don't think he was a fan of this freezing energy bills for six months so he's going to be going in now into a, a different economic environment because of the kind of the political and economic fallout from Liz Truss and trying to navigate that you know and yeah we don't know what he would do and that is not a good thing for our democracy it has essentially been a coronation and um, there wasn't even a leadership contest technically I mean Penny didn't even run in the end it was just Mm. Rishi Um, so it is concerning and you know the promises in the 2019 manifesto that they made again as you say there's a lot that's happened since then but that is all Rishi Sunak's mandate is based on is that manifesto and I think he was quite keen today to emphasise that I have a mandate based on this manifesto because if you're the public watching you're thinking you know we voted in Boris Johnson we've had Liz Truss who had had her own manifesto that was completely at odds with what they promised in 2019 It it was just chaos and now you've got Rishi trying to say well actually yes I'm the third prime minister in like two months but you know I'm going to stick to what you elected us to do in 2019 and realistically particularly to kind of calm the markets a little bit although there was spending pledges in 2019 that's the only option he has and also the party as a whole ran on this manifesto so if you've got all these different factions the one thing that they can all agree on is we stood on this manifesto in 2019 so in a a way that is also key to stop all of these weird kind of culture war factions you've got going on at the moment but one of the other one of the other things about it was the second clip that that, that particularly caught my attention where he talked about the advantages of brexit what we've seen since 2019 is there are no advantages to brexit some of us realized in 2016 there wouldn't Mm. be but i mean that really to to harp back to that now um it just shows that these people are either unaware of what's going on around them or totally stupid uh, or just desperately sort of trying coming up for air to, to try and win some support from the loony, le- loony right in the Conservative Party. Although in minor credit to Rishi Sunak, he is an OG Brexiter. He is not somebody who pulled a 180 degree skid on the subject immediately after the referendum um, unlike his immediate predecessor. Uh, Stephen and Nardine, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. We will bring some Nathan during the upcoming instrumental sting.
You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Rishi Sunak's appointment as Prime Minister is obviously principally of interest to the UK, but Sunak's progress to power has been avidly followed in at least one other country, India. Sunak's parents were born in what was then British East Africa, but he traces his descent back to India. He is the first British Asian to serve as Prime Minister and the first Hindu. For more on what this might mean for the UK's relationship with India, I'm joined by Somnath Batabayal, an Indian writer and a lecturer in media, in development and international journalism at SOAS. Um, Somnath, first of all, how big a deal has this been really in India? Well, Indians make a big deal of everything. (laughs) When the American vice president, now no one remembers her name in India, but when she became the vice president, we went gaga. So that's that's the Indian way of doing things. But... um, Rishi's grandfather was born in Gujranwala, which is now Pakistan. So Pakistan mm. is also laying claim. So there's another collision which is going to happen. Well, that, that, that's, that's good because they, they so rarely find anything to argue about. <laughs> yes, true. And as you said, um, father was born in Kenya, mother in what is today Tanzania. So the connection to India is more uh, through marriage and mm. marrying into Bangalore's, Bengaluru's first family, mm. the Murthy family. So that's where the connection comes in. Um, Everyone I know in India who is of any stature is now mentioning their close ties with Rishi, <laughs> his first name basis. So that, that started, and it started happening a couple of months back, but now it's everyone knows Rishi. He, some, he now has 1.2 billion cousins all of a sudden. I mean, 80 million or so, 800 million or so, yes. Yeah. Um, so there you go. I mean, from uh, film stars to prime ministers to uh, presidents, everyone's been congratulating him. I mean, one of the things which I think India will look forward to is lobbying hard uh, given that he has appointed the home secretary that he has uh, she continues how to kind of work through what the trade deal which fell mm. because of Breverman's... Well, this is what I wanted to ask, whether the fact of Rishi Sunak's descent and Rishi Sunak's in-laws could have an effect on real-world politics. Obviously, Suella Breverman's tactlessness already has. I mean... It's Look, I think it's going to be far-fetched to say just because there's some tenuous link to India that uh, national interests can be sacrificed or uh, accentuated because of just uh, grandfather was born somewhere. Um, it'll, be, you know, it'll be more... Uh, and it's been something which Britain has been working towards, trying to woo India for a long time, mm. and India has been playing hard politics with it. You know, they wanted a, Listras wanted a very quick deal. India pushed back. Uh, so I don't think it'll be an easy one, but there's definitely a new route which would have opened up, which Swara Braverman's comments, as you rightly said, blocked. Um, and hopefully there will be something, I mean, some where India, India has been wanting more visas for their mm. students, for their uh, uh, people who come here, longer stays. And the conversation around immigration, migration hasn't been pleasant in, um, as you pointed out, post-Brexit uh, has never been pleasant in Britain. But hopefully there'll be a more cultured conversation. And it's it's something which is bound to happen with with Rishid. And hopefully if he does stay the two years, uh, there'll be more of a conversation around this, yes. I mean, it, it, it's a, another question which, which cues up the, the wider question or a wider question about Rishi Sunak's succession, which I will bring uh, Stephen and Nadine in on. But... What's your sense of how big a moment this is, whether people agree with his politics or not, for for British Asian people? Look, it's a very significant moment. Mm. You know, when Rishi Sunak's parents would have come here in the 1960s, whatever dreams they had for their 
children. I think the prime ministership of Britain was not part of it. So race, conversations around race has definitely moved on. But there are a couple of caveats, I think, and they're important ones. He has not been chosen by the rank file Tory parties. Mm -hmm. right? That's a clear one. In um, fact, they very definitely didn't choose him. And if there had been somebody standing against him, probably the same fate would have you know, felt on him again. Uh, it has taken an economic catastrophe, resignation of two prime ministers for this to happen. So there, there are caveats and very strong caveats mm. to wh how this has come about. And, you know, having said that the race relations have moved on, post-90s conversations have moved on about uh, enfranchisement, who is empowered. This is a man who is both economically, economic capital, social and cultural capital, he's not disenfranchised, right? Mm. So he's amongst the 1%. Um, so we have to keep that in mind when we talk about progressive politics, uh, race relations and all of that. Um, uh, centers and peripheries keep shifting and therefore, um, while it has been made possible, while it is very significant, we have to realize that this is not as progressive. You know, look, we spoke about Obama and America, and mm. I'm not very quick to draw comparisons, but look at what happened in the US after that. Indeed. Yes. There's, the, there's the front lash and then there's the backlash. Yes. So, I, I, you know, I'm not saying that this is what's going to happen, but we have to be careful when we jump to, you know, is Britain post-racial? Um, uh, Nadine... Rishi Sunak, as various friends of mine have reminded me, is in fact Britain's second ethnic minority prime minister after Benjamin Disraeli. Uh, but nevertheless, he is the first person of colour to have served in the role. Um, and, and he's the, certainly the most visible uh, ethnic minority prime minister as the United Kingdom has had from that very exclusive field of two. Um, it does pose, though, an uncomfortable question uh, for progressives and not just Rishi Sunak, which is that... If you compare the record of the Conservative Party versus the record of the Labour Party, there actually isn't a comparison whatsoever. There have been three female prime ministers of this country. They've all been Tories. Um, and the level of promotion of women and members of ethnic minorities to the, the great officers of state, it's the Tories by an absolute mile. Why is that? Um, I think there's uh, several, issues, uh, several reasons. First of all, obviously, the Conservative Party is much less diverse um, when it comes to um, socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Rishi Sunak is incredibly wealthy. I think his combined net worth with his wife is 730 million. So class is a huge part of this. And there is a documentary that Rishi did, I think it was in 2001, where he says he has friends that are aristocrats, but doesn't have any working class friends. So that is a key thing. Class. He might have some working class staff, in fairness. <laughs> Well, he did apologise for that. He know? did apologise, but that's the kind of the kind of his upbringing, the kind of things that the, the social circles he was he was moving within. You know, he went to a very elite private school, then he went to Oxbridge, then he went to Stamford. So you know, we do have to be aware of these class issues. Mm. Also, in the UK, um, ethnic minorities are not a monolith. Um, you know, Indeed black not. people and particularly black Caribbean people are more disenfranchised. So there are those kind of movements, and I do think in this country, as we've seen, it is easier to progress to higher office if you're closer to the kind of more right-wing traditional establishment view than if you're on the left. Because a lot of people on the left, black people are, you know, oh, you hate white people or all this kind of stuff. People on the left, people of colour do tend to have that more. So Rishi's a bit more establishment, which is more palatable, I think, to the kind of uh, more right-wing leaning. But yeah, Labour does have a problem. And I don't know how they're going to address it. You know, 
it doesn't, you know, the, the disparity on women is an example. Like, there isn't really a reason why women aren't as senior as they should be in the Labour Party. Mm. Why haven't we had? We didn't, we're not even talking about a Labour Prime Minister. We're just talking about a Labour leader. Um, so, no, they do have these, these serious issues. But I think it's really important to remember that class is a huge thing. David Lammy comes from a deeply working class background. Mm. Angela Rayner, a deeply working class background. So, you know, if you look at the class composition of Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet and the class composition of Rishi's shadow cabinet, you're going to see a huge disparity there. Um, so I think it's important to remember that the Conservative Party is a way more elite party. And therefore, if you're within a so- certain socioeconomic demographic, you're more likely to be successful regardless of race in 2022 Britain. Um, just a final thought on this one. Uh, and I'll ask you, Stephen, for all that, and as Nardine very eloquently delineates, it is extremely complicated and we could probably do well actually not just another 10 minutes on that there's an entire series in this but will it nevertheless for all those complications and all those nuances change the way that the world looks at the united kingdom no (laughs) if you want me to be brief what i am and indeed i think uh, you know i as someone who uh, i hope is broad-minded and lives in london which i think is very significant too um think that you know this is this is one glimmer of hope actually Mm. with um with the appointment of this man um but a member of the conservative party and as has been pointed out when it went to the membership there was no way he was going to get in and um in, in a debate a couple of days ago on a certain radio station not the bbc but i won't name it what it was um because it might be a contender uh for monocle um said but he's not British. And unfortunately, the, the Blue Rinse Brigade out there in the country, outside London particularly, who are members of the, the 130,000 members of the Conservative Party, that is not an uncommon view. And that's rather worrying. Uh, Somnath, just one final thought from you before hopefully we can usher you out with yet another triumphal fanfare. Don't don't get too used to it. Um but <laughs> the Dukan Indians job is done, <laughs> do you mean? <laughs> Uh, no, not not quite that. It was it was just a, a follow up to what Nardine was saying and about the 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 difference uh, between Labour and the Tories in managing to promote women members of ethnic minorities to the, the highest ranks of the party. Is it possibly, and it's a criticism that's often made of progressives by conservatives, that progressives have this tendency to regard uh, women and members of ethnic minorities each as as monoliths rather than groups of individuals. They assume that all these people are the same in one respect, therefore they would, or perhaps more pertinently should, all think the same way as well. Wow. Yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, There are times when... um we progressives do tend to i mean i'll probably repeat your question Mm. that there is a huge problem in treating ethnic minorities as one block as you just pointed Mm. out nadine but what you correctly said that class uh economic capital social capital cultural capital is where it seems that the tory party is more diverse actually it is not uh, if we look at the top ranks of the, I mean, not even the, I mean, in the the cabinet, most of the MPs they'll be of a certain class and capital, which it, it, I mean, the, the Tories could also argue, though, pointing to John Major that they've had a working class prime minister more recently than Labour has. Yes, uh, Labour has not been in power for a very long time. <laughs> that, that's also there. Uh, no, but it, it, it is a problem which Labour uh, uh, has to face up to. I mean, we cannot run away from it. That it should be more diverse. We do not know why it's not more diverse, and just talking about it won't help. It has to reflect in the party. It's not there. 
Although one thing I would say is that there are more ethnic minorities in the Labour Party. The issue is they're not promoted mm. to the same level of office. Um, so that is a key issue. The, the, the Labour Party is more diverse. It has far more women as well. I, th- I mm. saw a really shocking statistic about the lack of women in the Tory party. So it is also about you know, the getting to those top ranks. You know, we've got Shadow Foreign Secretary, David Lammy, great, but we don't see any more black faces and there are a lot of black MPs. So you'd want to see more of that. Somnath Batterbile, thank you for joining us. Uh, Nardine and Stephen, we will have more from you shortly. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. She was doing this all on her own, and I think that she's been a real inspiration to journalists around the world, particularly where there are tough areas of freedom of speech. I think that one of the mantras that's going to come out of Washington in the Biden administration going forward is unity, but unity with accountability. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8 a.m. Zurich time, 7 a.m. in London, 2300 in Los Angeles, on Monocle 24, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Still with me are Nadine Batchelor-Hunt and Stephen Deal. Let's look now at one of the items in the new Prime Minister's teetering in tray, Russia, and what it plans to do next in Ukraine. In recent days, Russian authorities have been suggesting that Ukraine plans to detonate some sort of nuclear or nuclear-adjacent weapon, causing an amount of worry that Russia is planning to do exactly that and is doing some preparatory blame-deflecting. Elsewhere, Norwegian oil rigs are being buzzed by unidentified drones, undersea communications cables are getting mysteriously severed and the rhetoric issued by some Russian media has become explicitly genocidal. Um, Stephen, uh, is Russia actually rolling the pitch here trying to serve up a pretext for escalation or are they just trying to gauge response? Both, I would say. The mm-hmm. the, the fact they're saying it, um, we've seen in the past when they've come out with these things, um, does suggest that they might then go ahead and do something. They are very good at accusing the West of doing certain things, of of lying and of of doing all sorts of things that they're doing themselves. Mm. Um, This comes about for a number of reasons. One is Putin's resentment, which is probably the thing that drives him most of all. Um, He hates the idea that, um, that the Soviet Union split up. He hates the idea that the West is more advanced than Russia. He hates the idea that Ukraine was showing that it could actually become a a much stronger independent country than Russia. Um, All these things have fed into him. And he knows he's in a position of weakness overall. Never mind just talking about the, the war at the moment and what's happening on the front line. He's known this for a long time, and his way of trying to gain the upper hand is to goad the West. And he's a classic bully in that. He'll push as far as he can get. And if he meets softness, he will keep pushing. If he comes up against something hard, then he will stop. And we, the trouble is that the West has been far too weak, particularly if we go back to 2014. We could go back to 2008 in Georgia, but 2014, the, the seizure of Crimea, the invasion of eastern Ukraine, and the West put a few sanctions in place but it was far too soft and had we been stronger then this war might never have happened so what they're doing now is again he's testing that these idea of drones flying over um norwegian norwegian oil rigs and and um we've had uh, again 
um, recently, as, as has happened at times of tension in the past, um, Russian fighter jets flying very close to British airspace so that the RAF jets have to scramble, get up in the air and, and chase them off. They want to see what the reaction time is. They want to see how we should react. So they're very used to doing this. This is not new. Uh, Nadine, the, the cable cutting incidents, and there's been a few of them now, are especially weird. And we, we don't know yet uh, what has caused them or who might have caused them. But, you know, one thinks uh, at a moment like this of that maxim, I think, attributed to Ian Fleming, that once is happenstance, twice is coincidence and three times is enemy action. Uh, but if we look at specifically the cutting off of Shetland, does that seem like something you would do if you were trying to just goad or annoy or or again gauge response because obviously nobody's going to declare war on you for depriving the people of Shetland uh, or of their internet for the weekend but it's but it's still a thing it is still interfering with the the internal processes of an what Russia would perceive as an adversary. Well, I think, you know, it's like what you were saying, it's put, it's just testing the water. It's just, mm. you know, seeing how far he can go. And even little things like this that cause inconveniences, if Britain is just kind of like, oh, well, and then he does it again, and then he does it again, it's this kind of cumulative testing how, um, what the, the resolve of the country is and what the tone is. And if we just kind of shrug it off, then Putin knows he's got another inch. And I and also think it's just to kind of have some sort of retaliation for all the support that we're giving to Ukraine in that way, oh yeah, we cut off the Shetlands, that's our revenge. But it seems silly, but it is interfering with British infrastructure and it might be a tiny community now, but let's say that, you know, hypothetically he managed to cut off the, the energy supply to London. That would be a huge moment. Mm. So it's it's like incremental steps that we've seen with Putin. And, and this may seem small, you know, 10 years time might have escalated massively, but I do think it's him just testing the water as he has done on a, maybe a smaller scale, but it's 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 very much on brand. Um, there's another bubbling subplot uh, this week, Stephen, which is the fact that uh, Sergei Shoigu, Russia's defence minister, has spoken to his US counterpart Lloyd Austin twice in the last three days. Now, one assumes that there has been an amount of behind-the-scenes dialogue occurring all the way through this, but this is this is out and in the open. He's also spoken to the UK's defence secretary Ben Wallace at least once. What does that tell us? Is is, is there? I, I guess what I'm grasping for here is some nugget of optimism that there's at least a conversation occurring that is positive um insofar as it goes and it doesn't go very far let's be, let's be mm. clear about that this is not going to bring an end to the war um and i think it's as much for the west that they want to be seen to be talking to the russians mm. um and saying to the Ukrainians, no, we are not trying to negotiate behind your back, even though some American senators have said, oh, well, maybe, you know, you should try and get the Ukrainians around the table with, the, with, uh, with Russia, which is not going to happen, um, particularly since Putin declared parts of Ukraine as, as being parts of Russia. Um, there is no hope of negotiation, as far as I can see it, in, in, in this war. Uh, it, it's, it's got to end on, on the battlefield. Um, but... The West, the West can afford to be seen to be talking to Shoigu, not to Putin, but mm. to Shoigu. So um, the West is not going to make any promises. And obviously, um, Zelensky and the Ukrainian president will be keeping a close eye on this. And no doubt they will be briefing him as well. Um, I, I think he probably now feels confident enough that they're not going to stab him in the back. 
Um, but at the same time, they have to publicize what Shoigu says. And when he says about this dirty bomb, which is what he's been saying, um, that Ukraine might explode a dirty bomb with radioactive material on its own territory, that is complete nonsense. Uh, Nadine, just one final thought on this and prevailing upon your expertise in, in deciphering political language. Uh, the official MOD readout of the call between Shoigu and Ben Wallace was that it was professional and respectful. Now, that is obviously well short of the dreaded full and frank exchange of views. Uh, but what does professional and respectful mean? Probably uh, the way I interpreted it was it wasn't as unhinged as we've seen Putin um, <laughs> communicate. It sounds like they actually had a conversation, whereas Putin just does tend to rant. So, and again, I do think it's positive. It's not, you know, the war is over, but it's having a dialogue, I think, should always be positive. I mean, we saw back in, in February, they had literally had a meeting with Liz Trust saying we won't invade, and then they did. But I do think it's a positive sign at this point, particularly given all the Russian losses, that they are reaching out. If they were in a position of strength, they wouldn't they wouldn't be reaching out. They just wouldn't. They wouldn't need to. So I think inadvertently, I don't think you catch Putin doing it, talking to them, mm. uh, but I do think inadvertently it is an admission. And I think it also sends a message to the Russian people by saying, you know, oh, we are talking to them. We're not just talking to ourselves. So, you know, I do think it's a sign that Russia aren't as in a strong position as they'd like to portray it or hoped they would be by now. Okay, and in yet another week, which might well drive decent earthlings towards treacherous thoughts of collaboration with any future Martian invasion force, NASA has stepped up its contemplations of the degree to which we might not be alone. The American Space Agency has appointed a committee of boffins to study what NASA rather prissily describes not as UFOs but UAPs or unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, not nearly as catchy. Uh, Stephen, this follows public hearings in May, which, all jokes aside, recounted more than 400 such encounters reported by civilian pilots and military personnel. The Director of National Intelligence released a report into 144 of these reports. It could only identify one out of 144, which was a deflating balloon. Um, that kind of seems to me like it should be a bigger story. These are hundreds of reports by serious people um, of things in the sky which they were unable to identify. Yeah, I think the fact that it is serious people, it's a serious, you know, it's, it's pilots, it's people who've been through training, who are educated, who who one hopes are level-headed because they're flying aircraft. Um, I, I think that... So not, not, not some hay-eating yokel no. looking up from the porch on which he is plucking his banjo after a few swigs oh, of moonshine in, and in, seeing in, lights in the sky. Indeed. Uh, and and uh, I mean, I, I think that anyone who who thinks that, um, well, you know, we're the only planet that can be occupied in the whole of the universe um, must be a conservative voter who thinks <laughs> that England is the only country that counts in this world. Um, so the the idea that we are not alone in this vast universe um, seems to me entirely plausible and that there could be more intelligent beings out there. That is definitely plausible. Well, I mean, see, this has always been my reservation about these sort of inquiries, Nardine. If there's more intelligent beings out there, I, for one, want absolutely nothing to do with them, and I hope they keep a long, long way away from our planet, because if they show up here, we're screwed, aren't we? I kind of welcome alien overlords <laughs> at this point, you know. Um, and there are lots of conspiracy theories that were actually in a Matrix run by aliens. I personally don't believe that. But I'm, I do I'm believe... Pleased, I'm pleased to hear you clarify <laughs> that, I, Nadine, I, that. The show was about to take a whole new turn. 
Um, no, but I do believe that we're probably not alone in the vast infinity of the universe. Um, I do think it's beyond our understanding. And, you know, I don't think it's beyond the realm's possibility that there is a solar system that happened to exist like ours has and is close enough to a sun to not like burn, but also far enough to create life. So, yeah, I, I do believe that we're probably not alone. But it's also quite scary to think about because space in general just freaks me out. So, just to follow that up, though, with an actual journalistic question, because it was the thing that leapt out at me researching this, that there was talk uh, among the committee, and one of the reasons the committee has been established, that one of the reasons that this subject is perhaps underexplored is because people tend, people, to be honest, such as myself, tend to snigger or laugh when talking about this sort of thing. Therefore, there becomes a stigma attached to actually reporting what you believe is a serious thing. Is this something about which journalists should learn to think a little bit more seriously, perhaps? Because, let's face it, if it turned out to be true, it would be quite the story. There's, there's a Pulitzer going begging here. Yeah, I just think it's about uh, acknowledging that there will be crazy voices and conspiracy theories and everything. And I do think it is a rational thing. And I think scientists who work in these sphere, um, fields have always said there may be life out there. And I just think maybe it's reclaiming the narrative from the the kind of doolally people. But no, I, I do think as journalists, we should be interrogating these things. And yeah. And I think actually the idea of setting up this commission in, in the United States is a very good idea. I mean, they, they may not come up with any hard and fast answers, but uh, it, it is a subject that deserves serious consideration, I think. Stephen Diel and Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally, on today's show, it's time now for another look at the midterm congressional and other elections in the United States, just two weeks away. Monocle's Washington, D.C. correspondent Chris Chermak looks at the role that the war in Ukraine and other foreign policy challenges are playing in the campaign after an especially challenging year in geopolitics. There's something unique about support for Ukraine in the United States. Russia's invasion earlier this year has seeped far more deeply into the average American voter and politician than almost any other global crisis, at least of this generation. When I meet George Brown, the mayor for a small town in Pennsylvania called Wilkesbury, one of the first things he shows me is the picture of a fire department on the windowsill by his desk. Our fire department had a lot of extra equipment that we can no longer use because it's outdated. And as far as our specifications, it cannot be used. But it can be used in Ukraine and other places. So we looked at what those people are going through over in the Ukraine. How can we help them? And we packaged up the equipment that we feel will be helpful to them. So it's firefighting turnout gear, it's the air tanks, it's the helmets, and all the other gear that we can no longer use. We packaged up, and it was... Uh, picked up by some Ukrainian people, taken to New Jersey, and then flown over to uh, Poland and then shipped to uh, Ukraine. And the picture that's here is actually a picture of our equipment being utilized by Ukraine firefighting. Mayor Brown says his town has also donated more than 17,000 masks to help Ukrainian rescue workers enter buildings. Their next task, he says, is collecting adult diapers, another necessity. The town has donated so much that Ukraine's ambassador to the United States was due to visit Wilkesbury to offer thanks, just a week after my own visit with the mayor. You know, we really feel strongly behind them. Several places in the city have Ukraine flags flying, different uh, buildings and, and on public square. So we show our, our support for them. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan led to a certain fatigue among the public when it comes to intervening abroad, 
But while the US may not have troops on the ground in Ukraine, the war has certainly galvanized people here in a manner that is different from other conflicts. It's also mostly united the two parties, Republicans and Democrats, even at a time when the two parties are at each other's throats on so many other domestic issues ahead of November's midterm elections. While there is a vocal minority of Republicans with more isolationist tendencies, questioning the extent of US aid, for example, speaking out against Ukraine has not been much of a vote winner this election cycle. Going back to the start of this year, you had a solid majority of Republican voters saying they favored supporting Ukraine. This is Colin Duke, a former Republican strategist and expert on national security policy at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. If anything, they were critical, according to the polls, they were critical of Biden for not doing enough, whether it came to arms sales, arms shipments, sanctions, you name it. So it's not as though the base of the party is purely isolationist, and then you've got a few people in D.C. that are the opposite. I mean, actually, the base of the Republican Party can be pretty hawkish and engaged on issues like Ukraine. But there is also a significant minority, let's say maybe a third of the voters on the Republican side, who really are more critical or skeptical. Foreign policy in general is one area where the two sides are coming together on a number of issues. Colin Duke points to President Joe Biden's more hawkish takes on China and even globalization, which were laid out in his national security strategy last week. There was an emphasis on great power competition. You know, we're sort of, we're not going back to 10 or 15 years. There's a recognition that China and Russia are real challenges. So you didn't see that in the Obama or for that matter, the Bush documents. That's actually continuity with the Trump administration's national security strategy. And I mean that in a good way. But of course, if you look deeper, then there are some major differences. Where agreement between the two parties breaks down the most is on how Biden brings climate change into the picture. That's an issue where it has to be said most Republican voters and politicians still refuse to take a stand. If you look at the way the document's structured, it's got sort of two silos. There's a silo that refers to great power competition, and China is the top of that list geopolitics. And then there's a silo that's called transnational issues. And that's basically viewed as cooperative. And climate change is at the top of that list. And the document is really just as much about climate change as, as it is about China. I mean, those are those are the two top priorities, it seems to me, just from the sheer number of mentions and the way they're emphasized. So this is a climate change national security strategy. And again, you're not going to get bipartisan agreement on that. And then there's the question of democracy. Joe Biden has been drawing some eerie parallels between foreign and domestic threats. One of the things I think is most promising about the strategy is really the continuing realistic erasure of lines between domestic and international. This is Mara Rudman, a former national security advisor for the Clinton and Obama administrations. The kinds of challenges that the United States is facing, we're seeing in Europe, we're seeing in all different parts of the, the world with respect, certainly to inflation right now, um, the cost of energy, but also the threats from authoritarian leaders and the threats to the very fabric of democracy, which we absolutely are suffering here at home in the United States and we're seeing throughout the world. She says democracy and the protection of it is something that remains a major concern for Democrats heading into the midterm elections. 
And she even accused Republicans of holding autocratic tendencies not that different from some foreign governments. There is a difference between isolationist tendencies and authoritarian tendencies. And to me, with a great deal of um, concern and fright, we have far more support in this country for an authoritarian approach that does not incorporate, in fact, disregards the rule of law, which is so central to a democracy. It is like what Putin is doing. It is like Xi in China. But it, look at Hungary, I mentioned earlier, and Orban as the leader of Hungary and his close connection with MAGA extremists in the United States. Most Republicans will, of course, scoff at such parallels and insist they support democracy just as much as the next candidate. But if there is anywhere to look for a darker shift this election cycle in the nature of threats facing the United States, this would certainly be one homegrown place to find them. For Monocle, in Washington, I'm Chris Chermack. Thanks, Chris. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Nadine Bachelor hunt Stephen Diel, and Somnath Batabile. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean, with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.